Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is letting go of letting go. And my guest is my old friend, Peter Russell, who is the author of many books, including From Science to God, The Global Brain, The Brain Book, Waking Up in Time, The Awakening Earth, The Global Brain Awakens, and most recently, Letting Go of Nothing. Peter is based in Sebastopol, California, and now I'll switch over. Welcome, Peter. It's a real pleasure to be with you. It's been many years since we've been together. Yes, lovely to be with you again, Jeffrey. It's, yes, I don't know, but quite a number of years since we last were together. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, letting go. And as you've explained it to me, it's your synthesis of uh, the explorations you've been doing for many, many decades into the different spiritual traditions. And also, as I understand, and I didn't really mention this in the introduction, you teach meditation. Yes, I've been teaching meditation well from back in the um, early 70s, for 50 years now, probably about 71, I said, yeah, 50 years I've been teaching meditation. Back then, initially, it was TM, Transcendental Meditation, and then I sort of, I've explored other sorts of meditation, but that, that was a foundation, But and I've been teaching meditation off and on ever since, in one form or another, yes. And as you say, this work, this, the letting go has always been a theme right from the beginning. When I first started meditation, I realized it was about letting go. And that's a theme I've explored continually in one way or another through my life. As, as you write about it, that the, the, the concept of letting go seems to be right at the heart of practically every spiritual tradition. And yet at the same time, you have uh, a an ethos, which is practically the opposite, I think, that dominates Western culture, which you could call it hanging on, like, hang in there, baby, don't give up. Right. Hang on. Hang on to what you think is important. Hang on to what you want, what you think you need, etc. Yes, our whole culture is about getting what we want and working on it and having goals and holding on to them. And yet, as you say, every just about every spiritual tradition has said, you know, the opposite is, is actually the way to go for real inner freedom and release, whether it's letting go of judgments, our attachments, letting go of ego. It comes up again and again and again. At least any Westerner, for sure, on a spiritual path is going to come into this, uh, run into this. When they start to feel like letting go, there's going to be another part of the mind that's that's going to say, no, I'm hanging on. Right. And... And what we also tend to do is we tend to try to do the letting go. We actually get attached to the letting go itself. You know, I've got to do the letting go. I've got to hang on to the idea. I've got to let go of this. So, yes, we, it really runs against so much of our culture. That just the very idea of letting go, of allowing things to be. You know, it's the whole idea of it, in a way, coming back to the present, which again runs counter to our culture, which is all about thinking about 
you know, what happened, what you got to do, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, but I think, you know, in a way, spiritual wisdom has always been count, counter to our culture. It, it's, it's part of it, its value in a way because it's questioning some of the fundamental things that we take for granted in our more material worldview. When it comes to meditation, though, it does strike me that there, there are some forms of meditation which are not particularly about letting go. Like, for example, repeating a mantra over and over again. It's more about concentration than, than about relaxing and letting go into the meditation. Of course. I mean, there are many, many different types of meditation. And, you know, there's a lot of techniques which do involve concentration, holding the attention to a particular object, whether it's an image or a mantra or whatever. And, you know, they have their value. They're designed to get to particular states of consciousness or train the mind in particular ways. What I'm interested in is meditation that allows the mind to quieten down, so we, so we come to a state of inner quiet. And for that, Trying, holding on doesn't really work. Well, it may work in the long term, but I'm interested in what can actually help people right in this moment, in a, in a meditation right now, to actually allow their mind to quieten down. And for that, we need to let go of let go of the thinking we get caught in. Again, people think meditation is about stopping thoughts. I've got to stop thoughts coming in. You'll, you'll never stop thoughts coming in. That's part of how we are. Thoughts keep coming. But what I encourage people to do is just, is not to follow the thought. Just make that choice. I'm not going to follow the thought for now. And just keep coming back to our actual experience in the present, but not, not concentrating on it, just like a more open, expanded awareness of the present moment. So, that's, you know, that's the particular form of meditation that, that I'm interested in, that I share with people. But you're right, there's, there's many, many different sorts. I'm really interested in what's the simplest, what's the simplest, quickest way of coming to a state of greater quiet and stillness? And part of that, I gather, is accepting uh, the, uh, the urges that we have, the things that pull us away from letting go. It's uh, learning how to be with them, in fact, I titled this interview, Letting Go of Letting Go. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. Yes. Um, and that's why I, I, re, I reframe letting go as not trying to get rid of something. We often think of letting go as, I've got to get rid of this, whether it's a feeling or something or an idea we're having or some judgment or some grievance. We think of letting go as trying to get rid of it. And maybe that is the goal in the end is to be without this particular uncomfortable emotion or whatever it is. But I see letting go as, well, I treat it as the opposite. I'm not trying to get rid of something, but doing the opposite. And that's why I call it letting in and letting be. And so the first step, many, many different ways of letting go is first of all, to let in the actual experience. So if you're having some uncomfortable feeling that keeps coming up, instead of sort of pushing it to the back of the mind, hoping it'll go away or doing something else, is to pause and just say, okay, what's actually happening here? What's going on in my body? And sort of tuning into the actual sensations, the feelings. And when we do that, firstly, we could actually begin to relax because usually we're resisting things so much that puts tension into it. We can begin to relax. But often, you know, we begin to see what's actually going on there. And this is sort of so I call it a metabolism that happens. Things begin to unwind of their own accord when we begin to allow the experience in. So you're right. It's not um, 
it's not about forcing forcing ourselves away from it. The, the way I do it, the way I approach it, is doing the opposite. The opposite of what we intuitively think we should be doing. Well, as a psychotherapist, I know many times when I see clients or used to see clients because I no longer practice as a, as a therapist, if they're experiencing a tense emotion, it could be anger or fear or, or grief, to tell a therapy client, oh, just let go of that is, is certainly not going to work and is, is not appropriate. You, normally, in, in the therapy context, people need to work through those emotions before they can begin to let go of them. Right, yes. And I think and the first, I would say the first stage in working through them is actually becoming more aware of what's actually there, what's going on. And both in terms of, you know, the body, which I always come to first, I think the body is really important, but also what's going through our heads, the story we're telling ourselves, that's equally important. In, in, in fact, that's what defines who we are. Yes, <laughs> well, it defines, it defines who we are as a, a personal self. The, the self yeah. that we navigate through the world with, the self that we present to other people, the self that is our historical self that um, also is, you know, how, how we define ourselves in relationship to others. Yeah, that's that's what I call the, the personal self. Yeah. And, and obviously, there's a much deeper layer that has uh, nothing to do with our, our life history. Right. And that's what I mean, some mystical traditions call the pure self or just the self with a capital S. And what they're pointing to there is that sense of I, that sense of I am that is always there. I mean, my personal self is changed over time, obviously, with different, you know, different life experiences and things, different history. But that sense of I am, the, the I that is here right now experiencing this is the same I that was there yesterday, a week ago. It's the same I that was there, you know, as a child. That that doesn't change. And so that is there in a, in a way in parallel with the personal self. But usually we're so caught up almost engrossed by who we are as a personal self that we don't notice that inner sense of of just being really i just call it the being self or you know sometimes i just call it i am or amming it's almost a process it's like it, but it's always there but it's very very subtle that most of us don't notice it and that's again another reason i think for allowing the mind to become quiet when we take our interest away from what we have to do and our experience, etc., when the mind begins to become quiet, then we're in a space where we can begin to notice, ah, yes, here I am, that same I am that's always been there. And we can begin to notice that. And that, I think, is what a lot of the great, or I would say in one way or another, all the great spiritual traditions have been pointing towards, coming coming back to that, that deeper sense of... Um, Almost ever-present sense of self, ever-present, unchanging uh -huh. sense of self. Yeah. One of the things you point out in in your book, when when you get attached in some way, you know, particularly in a personal relationship, where sometimes we get locked into "I'm right and they're wrong," and I have to pursue this feeling of uh, of rightness and convince the other person how wrong they are. You you suggest that a good way to let go of that is to ask yourself: Is there another way I could see this situation? 
Yes, I find these sorts of questions are really, really valuable because when we're stuck, you know, we're stuck in sort of a relationship with a person, we're feeling something or other, some grievance or hurt or whatever it is, that's that's because we're seeing we're seeing things through what I call the ego mind, which is a way of thinking which is concerned about being in control, making things happen the way we want them to happen. It's basically there to keep us safe and keep us secure. So that, that it's a way of seeing things. And if we're stuck, it's because we've got caught in a certain way of seeing things. And so one of the fundamental questions that I, I use a lot is just to pause and ask myself, could there be another way of seeing this? Not to try to find it, and that's important. If you try to find another way of seeing things, you're getting into that sort of almost back into that trying control mode. But just to pose the question as a seed and wait. And sometimes something happens, sometimes it doesn't. But when something happens, it's usually a different way of seeing things that actually appears to it happens a shift happens i know i mean one time when i was doing this early on in my exploration it was i was having some disagreements with my partner the sort of thing that happens in any relationship and you know i was wanting her to change she was wanting my to change me to change and and then i just i just sat and just asked this question and it was amazing it was like instant it's like aha here is another human being with her own background and challenges, navigating her way through life, dealing with me. And it was suddenly, it just, everything shifted. The, the judgment, that went away because I was seeing her in a different way. And like the love returned and I just, I felt at ease again. I felt, you know, a greater sense of love. And it was obvious, like, why hadn't I seen that before? And the reason I hadn't seen it before in a way was because I was so caught up in this particular way of seeing so when when i ask these questions i think i'm in a way posing the question to my deeper sense of self which knows it knows the answer but it can't shine through because i'm so caught up in how i'm looking at things it knows the answer and so i'm posing that question that's waiting and seeing what happens and that to me is part of really the essence of letting go is a change of mind. It's seeing things in different ways. As we said earlier, it's not about getting rid of something, but it's about a change of mind, seeing things from a different perspective. There is, I think, a sense in in culture in general. Uh, I, I guess it has to do with gender roles, where if, if you're a male, uh, there is a certain cultural expectation you're going to take charge of things that you're going to, for example, dominate other people, particularly women. And, and therefore you ought not to change your mind. Sometimes, you know, being changeable is, is considered a sign of weakness. I hadn't considered that as a gender issue. I don't know. I would suspect <laughs> both genders can fall into this quite a bit. So, but it is, you know, I would just say as, as a general thing, we don't want to, we want to be right. I mean, what I, what I call the ego mind, that way of thinking, it wants to be right. It's got a job to do. It's got a job to do. Its job is to keep us safe and secure and comfortable and keep us away from danger and all those things. And it needs to be insistent. It needs to feel it is right. That's its job. If it was all woolly thinking like, oh, you know, maybe 
there's a bus coming down the street at me. Um, maybe it's dangerous, maybe it's not, and maybe need to calculate its velocity, or, or maybe I just trust that everything's going to be okay. Its job is to say, get out the way. It, and so it needs to be insistent. And so when we get caught in some way of thinking like this, it, 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 sort of, it, it gets more and more insistent and containing us in it or holding us in it. And that's part of, part of the challenges of letting go, I think, is recognizing when that happens. And so for me, one of the things I look for is if I'm getting into that insistent thinking, I must do this, I must say this to this person, I must do that, whatever it is, is to pause and wait. And then, you know, is there another way of looking at this? And very often something else appears. But that insistency is a little sort of, it's the hobgoblin of the mind in a way. It keeps us trapped. You make a distinction, as I recall, between, I guess, what I would call egotism and a healthy ego. Yes, yes. I mean, a healthy ego is what, you know, the psychologists talk about as a sense of self-worth that allows you to form meaningful relationships, navigate your way through the world. I mean, that that's a healthy sense of ego. And then there's what, what I call ego or egotism. I, I call it the ego mind. There's, I don't see this a thing called the ego. If I look inside myself, I don't find some separate part of me called the ego. What I find is um, egoic ways of thinking, which are basically ways of thinking that are concerned about myself and what I need, and very often are so concerned about myself that I'm not too not so concerned about what other people might want or need. So it's that more self-centered mode of thinking that we get caught in. But it, it's a mode of thinking. And and at times it's useful. I mean, at times we need to be self-centered. We need to be looking after ourselves. We need to be concerned about our safety or, or whatever it is. But the problem is it gets triggered so much of the time when it doesn't need to be triggered. And it gets triggered by imagination a lot of the time. We start imagining, oh, what might happen? This might go wrong. I need to do this. And we get caught up in in a lot of worry and anxiety that, that's not necessary. So, yes, the healthy ego is is a very important part. But this egoic way of thinking keeps us keeps us again keeps us trapped when, when, when it's there far too much. Yeah. You also earlier referred to the idea of uh, being in the here and now, which is where we get in touch with what we could call the authentic self, the self with the big S. Is not attached to our, our life story. And yet, at the same time, you wrote a book, and, and writing a book involves planning and uh, looking at the future. You're working towards a, a, a publication date and deadlines and things that are obviously not in the here and now. It'd be hard to get anything done if we're always only in the here and now. Absolutely. it's a, But the problem is that most of us are seldom in the here and now. There needs to be an alternation. But a, a, a lot of people are just, they're spending their whole time in the past or the future, worrying about things, planning things, getting excited by other things. And I think, again, what a lot of the 
teachings have said in one way or another, we need to come back to the here and now because that's where we refresh ourselves. It's where we can actually be in touch with our more authentic self. It's where we can be free from the machinations of the ego mind. So there needs to be a balance between the two. And you're right. When I, you know, when I was writing, I certainly had, you know, thoughts about, you know, what was happening with the book, where I was going. There's a lot of, a lot of thinking going on and a lot of planning. And, but then what was important, I think, in, in writing the book or anything was to have, was to pause an hour and again, to pause and come back to, as Ram Dass would say, being here now. That's as important for me. The two need to be there together. And I know, particularly when I'm writing, sometimes I, you know, I get stuck on something. I can't see what to do. And rather than battling on and trying to make it work, I find if I just stop and pause and be quiet, very often I can begin to see, ah, that's where I was going wrong. I need to actually approach this in a different way. So there's a lot of our own innate inner knowing, our own inner wisdom that can shine through when we pause in the here and now. That doesn't get a chance when we're caught up in all the, all the thinking mode. We need to pause that in order to know what to think. You know, Peter, another comment you made earlier that caught my attention, I, if, if I understand your meaning correctly, you, you suggested that if we try to push an unwanted thought out of our mind, we probably won't succeed, that, that it, people in general are not very good at concentrating that way. Right, yes. Well, we can succeed to some extent. If we push it to the back of our mind, we may succeed in not having it bother us in our conscious mind at the moment. But it's still there underneath. And I think it was Carl Jung who said, what we resist persists, meaning that you know what we push back and don't allow into our consciousness is there. And it's still affecting us and controlling us in many ways if we've got if we've got some something like that we push to the back of the mind it's still there sort of festering away and some little event can trigger it like if you were feeling angry at somebody and you push that away somebody else comes along and says something almost innocuous but it could be enough just to trigger that anger and it and it bursts out so it it isn't really getting rid of it it's just, it's just pushing it out of sight but it's still it's still controlling us and in, in a way i think and I think a lot of, you know, your psychologists, I think you probably, you know, I hope you'd agree with this, that things that are actually unconscious can often actually control us far more than what's going on in our awake consciousness. In psychology, it's sometimes called the return of the repressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the more, again, going back to what we were saying earlier, the more we can open to it. And I, I encourage an attitude of curiosity, just being interested in, What's actually going on? Because I think there's so much we have to learn from ourselves if we can just be open to it, open to exploring it. But I think what often happens is we're, we're scared that if I really looked at this, you know, if it's anger, I might be scared that if I really got in touch with my anger, I, I go and hit somebody. Or you know, if I'm sad, I might be scared that I burst out sobbing in public. I think that's the reason we push things back. But I think what I find is the more I get in touch with something, the less it controls me, the more I'm the more I'm able to just be with it as it is. You've been teaching meditation, as we discussed earlier, for nearly half a century at at this point, maybe more for, <laughs> than half a century. Give or take yeah. six months. <laughs> <laughs> 
let me ask you this. Uh, I realize we, we live at a time uh, when there's enormous amount of stress in our culture. The suicide rate is, is up. People, the addiction rate is up. People are uh, homeless. And, and, I mean, many, many people, millions of people are dealing with serious problems. And many of them seek out meditation as a way of finding some peace. How, how is, do you think meditation works for people who are in, in, dealing with these major life issues? As we were touching, I think we, you know, we all need to actually be able to pause and just step back from things for a moment or two to come back to that state of quietness. It's, even if you're not particularly quiet, but just coming back to a quieter state, it's there's a sense of relief that happens there, which I think for a start is just very good for our general health and well-being. And it's been found that in meditation, where they've done physiological studies of what happens in meditation, they find generally it's the exact opposite to the stress release. When you look at the biochemistry and other physiological markers, what happens in meditation is the opposite to stress. So having some period of meditation, you're actually de-stressing yourself. You're, unstre you're unstressing, releasing the stress. And that in itself, I think, is, is, is incredibly valuable. But also, as I also touched on, I think we come back from meditation with a clearer mind. We can see more clearly what's going on, what needs to be done. And I think, you know, we all know if you, if you react to somebody out of some instant response of whatever it is, annoyance or something, often, you know, people say, I wish I'd counted to 10. Just to step back from it enough to get a little distance is, it can be really helpful. And I think, you know, and also as part of that, because we see things in a different way, I think it allows us to be more creative in terms of, so we've got really, really challenging circumstances we need to deal with, whatever they are. If we can occasionally step back and get in touch with you know, that deeper sense of self-being, I think we can actually approach whatever the challenges are with a clearer mind and maybe more be more creative in our response, see, see better about what we need to do, how we need to respond. I gather from your response that you don't think that there's a, a category of person for whom meditation would not be recommended. Generally, no. I mean, somebody might be able to come up with a particular type of psychological condition where I would say, okay, no, in that case, it may not be recommended. But generally, in the most general sense, I would say 99%, definitely, it's it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Um, there are people, some people who take to it easily, some people who, because of their conditioning, and they're, they're so caught up in the trying, got to do mode, it takes a little more um, helping tuition to really get them to relax. But I, I always find when I'm teaching someone meditation, the first thing I do is to encourage them just to relax physically, just to let the body relax, let the tensions go, let the weight go, because that is a key part of it. If we begin to let the body relax, then we can begin to work on allowing the, the mind to relax. But generally, to answer your question, I would say for this sort of meditation, Yes, it's going to help anybody. I really think it's going to help anybody in some way or another. Yeah. When I first started to meditate, I 
like you got involved with transcendental meditation, 20 minutes twice a day seemed like a, a really good approach. I'd still recommend that highly for for lots of people. But it, recently, Peter, I've uh, started to meditate for longer periods of time, like sometimes an hour. And uh, in fact, I think on one occasion, two hours. And uh, I, I found that uh, to a large extent, or maybe not large, maybe a small extent, but to an extent, uh, the lengthier periods of meditation have enabled me to go deeper, to get in touch with things that I couldn't quite access uh, in a 20-minute period. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that? Yes, yes. Um, I found similar things like 20 minutes, whatever it is, people practice 20 minutes or 15 minutes. That, I think, is a really good day-to-day -day practice, you know, maybe twice a day, whatever fits into your routine. It becomes a regular thing of just stepping back and pausing and that de-stressing that happens and the sense of relief and rest. But in long, I, I do longer periods of meditation. What I sometimes like to do is, is go away for long retreats and, you know, typically a week or 10 days or even sometimes done longer than that, where I'll be doing a lot more meditation a day and longer periods of meditation. And when I do that, the mind, my mind settles down into a much deeper quality of stillness. And I can almost like be living in that quality of deep stillness and still, you know, doing things, going eating, getting meals, that sort of thing. But there's a, there's a, in that deeper stillness, I begin to see things in myself that I hadn't seen before. And that's, those states are really a teacher for me. I think, you know, a, in a way, I think a lot of what I've discovered about letting go and things have actually come from just sitting in those deeper states of quiet and observing what happens, where my mind goes, and and observing how to, you know, work with that. So I think there's there's a great value in doing that. But I wouldn't encourage people to do that in the middle of a day-to-day -day life because if you do that, you can get a bit spaced out. And you know, so you know, if you're leading a busy life and you've got family and things, whatever, and you suddenly sit down and meditate for two hours, you may find yourself, you know, a bit too spaced to deal with things. It's more, it's something to do when you take, for me, to take time out and then and then do it. Yes, but I agree, it can be very valuable, and that's why, you know, again, some traditions encourage long retreats. I mean, in some of the you know, Tibetan Buddhist traditions, people go off on what's a three-year retreat. But that's, you know, that's for the real, for the real adepts, the, the monks, the lamas. But again, it's seen as part of their inner education to do that. But <laughs> I'm not going to do that. In the West, though, we have other traditions. Uh, people, for example, study mathematics and physics or concentrate on an athletic event. And, and I think we cultivate concentration through activities such as that rather than through a pure mental discipline like meditation. I think, yes, there's, there's many ways in which we are developing the mind, developing developing the attention. I mean, concentration is, is really about developing how we use the attention. And, and meditation, I see, is really an exercise in the attention. So, yes, there's, there's many ways we can actually develop these skills. And then some of them can be applied to meditation itself. You know, when we learn how to, how to allow the mind to 
stay steady in a relaxed state, then we can actually bring that into meditation. Well, I know that your recent book, Letting Go of Nothing, as you say, is, is based on your getting at the very essence of the various spiritual traditions that you've been involved in, including Buddhism and transcendental meditation and undoubtedly a few others along the way. Uh, what I'd like to ask you, Peter, is over half a century, how would you say your meditation has evolved? Uh, it's just got simpler and simpler. It's, it's fascinating. It's got, I think as I become more familiar with those deeper, quieter states, there's, there's almost less and less to do. It's like I can sit down and because I, I, I'm so familiar with those states, I can just sort of sit down and really just drop in just like that. So it's, it's almost like the meditation ceases to be actual, an actual process or something I'm doing. It's just, it's a time to drop back into being. So, yeah, over the years, it's just become easier and easier. But also, what I notice is in those, in those deep, quieter states, there's often this realization that, like, oh, this is what the great masters were talking about. This is what they were pointing to. And, it, and the idea that it doesn't need effort to get there. The effort is getting in the way. And the more we can just relax and take out the effort, the easier it becomes to just drop into these quieter states. I have uh, interviewed some meditation researchers who are working with, for example, advanced Buddhist meditators, people who have been practicing for minimum of 10 years intensively. And uh, they describe the ability of the advanced meditators to enter into particular states. For example, there's something known as the meditation-induced near-death experience, where uh, meditators seem to enter into uh, what the Buddhists would call the bardo planes, what the Tibetan Buddhists uh, refer to, the afterlife through meditation. Uh, has that been uh, something that you've noticed in your own practice? No, it hasn't. Um, I haven't been um, deliberately exploring that. I haven't been deliberately going in that direction. I hear about these things, and they're, they're quite fascinating. Um, I suppose I'm just more interested in meditation as just uh, a day-to-day -day thing, as a, a way to enhance and improve my life in this world. Uh, but it's certainly, I mean, I know you, you can use these techniques to get, explore some, you know, quite amazing, fantastic states. I know in, in Buddhism, they sometimes tend to refer to, you know, different paths, the big boat, the Mahayana path versus the small boat. And, and uh, what you're describing, uh, your practice, it strikes me as being quite similar to uh, what is sometimes described in the Vipassana tradition, where, you know, a thought comes and when you realize it comes, you let go of that thought. And then another one comes. So would you say that's an accurate description? Yes. Um, I think what I'm describing has come both from my experience of Vipassana as it's taught in the Southeast Asian tradition rather than the Tibetan tradition. 
um, with with TM transcendental meditation, I began to see there were ele- elements of both which could be brought together. And I think with with TM, it was the the absolute effortlessness, and then bringing that into a more vipassana mindfulness approach because what i was noticing was with mindfulness people do do seem to inadvertently start trying to they start trying to hold the attention it's like if you're being mindful of the breath for example that's where a lot of mindfulness practices start then people begin to just like they're holding the attention to the breath. They think they've got to stay with the breath. And so that comes in. And it's not always in the teaching. I mean, it's interesting. I've listened to you know, teachers of mindfulness teaching, and they don't say you've got to stay with the breath, but just keep coming back to it. But then you listen to the students and the questions they're asking, and it's, it's always about, you know, oh, I, keep, I can't keep my attention on the breath. I keep losing it. And so that begins to creep in. And so what I do right from the beginning in my in the way I teach, is to say there is no intention here to ho- hold the attention on anything, no intention to focus on anything, but to be in a much more open space of just noticing what is going on. If you happen to notice the breath, that's what you're noticing. If you happen to notice the sensation in the body, that's what you're noticing. But don't try and hold it there. So in a way, what I'm, I think what, I, what I'm sharing in my practices is what I've learned from TM, and, and what I've learned from mindfulness practices and sort of bringing the two together. I sometimes jokingly call it transcendental vipassana. Well, I think that's uh, a fascinating and an appropriate way to look at it. I've had uh, other uh, meditators uh, describe something very similar. And I guess it's fair to say that that's very different than the kind of exotic, uh, Mahayana meditations where you're invoking tutelary deities and concentrating on specific mantras and colors all at the same time. Until the mind eventually gives up. <laughs> and then you drop back into yourself. I remember one one teacher in that tradition saying that you do all these things, you hold this, and you hold this image, and you're exactly what you're describing. And they said, and then eventually the mind gives up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Peter Russell, this has been a lovely conversation. It's a great pleasure to be with you again. Uh, I know you uh, have many other thoughts about science and spirituality that we haven't even begun to to touch upon. So I'm uh, hopeful that we'll find more opportunities. Yes, I'd love to. Love to. Yes, now we're back in touch. I'd love to do that sometime. Well, Peter, thank you so much for being with me today. Pleasure. Thank you. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.